This episode of Remnant Radio is brought to you in part by our sponsors at Kairos Classrooms. Have you ever thought about learning a biblical language as a supplemental tool in your biblical studies? Well, Kairos Classrooms offers real classroom environments with with classmates and a live instructor who can help teach you biblical languages, both Greek and Hebrew. You need to check out Kairos Classrooms today. Uh, The price for a single semester is crazy affordable for anyone, so check out the links in the description and use promo code REMNANT to get 10% off Kairos Classrooms. Check out Kairos Classrooms today. Discount code R-E-M-N-A-N-T, REMNANT, to get 10% off your semester. Hey everyone, welcome to the wonderful world of Remnant Radio. My name is Joshua Lewis, and today we're talking about theology and the arts with Kemper Crab. It's going to be an exciting episode. You guys stay tuned. You are watching The Remnant Radio, a crowd-funded show where we interview pastors, teachers, historians, and theologians from different churches and denominations. My name is Joshua Lewis, and this is my co-host, Michael Roundtree. Together, we want to help you break outside of your theological echo chambers. If you're interested in learning about history, theology, or the gifts of the Spirit, this is the show for you. I just love that soundtrack every single week. It sounds cooler and cooler. You want me to plug this in, so there's not a lot of yeah, that'd be cool. reverb. Yeah, I'll do that. Uh, guys... This is going to be an exciting episode. We've got a lot of really good stuff to dive into today. Uh, We're going to be talking about theology and the arts. Before we dive into that, I want to remind you we're entirely crowdfunded. So if you're out there, you love this episode or you love the other episodes that we've done and you want to support us, help us keep the proverbial and literal lights on. You can do that in the description of the video. We have links in there for both PayPal and Patreon. You can give on one time on PayPal, or you can give monthly on Patreon as low as five bucks a month to get access to extra content, such as a book that we're doing on the Kingdom of the Cults by Walter Martin. Uh, We just finished up the chapter on Buddhism, and uh, every single week we upload a new chapter there on uh, Zoom on Patreon. You can join us um, Saturdays at 1 p.m. Central Standard Time. Michael? How have you been, man, since we've seen each other last week? Have you, have you just been I, I, I just just looking forward to the next time I could see your face. Uh, I, I, <laughs> and also I wondering, you, this is unusual. I don't usually see an avocado on, a, on our thing. table. What is that doing? I taped, I taped another episode. Your avocado. I taped another episode today, and I was really famished. And I was like, I need an avocado. And I kind of came into the studio me? a little bit later because I was really hungry. So I haven't even chomped into it. So if you guys hear some smacking. In the middle of just this gonna episode, straight up eat an avocado, probably an because avocado. why not? Okay, why not? so uh, excited to have you guys with us and Kimper Crab. We're gonna tell you a little bit more about him uh, in a moment. Make sure you hit that subscribe button. We got Pike tomorrow. Uh, we've got an episode about misreading the scripture through Western eyes, and so how do we crawl into the cultural context in which the scripture was written so that we can rightly understand it? On Wednesday, our to-be-continued episode where we talk about all things, gifts of the Holy Spirit. Uh, I think it's going to be the finale on demons for a while, or as Josh likes to say, devils. And uh, and we're talking about demonic strongholds and what are they and how do we overcome them and what does the scripture say about them. And so that is going to be on Wednesday. And then last week was our four-year... Did we even mention this? Uh, No. It was our four-year anniversary. We turned four. Four Four-year birthday. We turned four as a podcast. So that was pretty exciting. Okay. I know you guys are also excited about that. So uh, without further ado, Kemper Crab, how are you doing? Doing good. Good, good. Glad to be here today. You know, Excellent. Um, I've enjoyed you guys' show before. I never thought I'd actually get to be on it, but so thanks. Oh, no. <laughs> uh, it's, it's our pleasure to have you on. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your ministry before we dive into the subject matter? Yeah, I'm, uh, I mean, I'm presently, uh, I help pastor a church in Katy, Texas, outside of Houston, a, a Lutheran church. Uh, I am a Episcopal priest, so it's a, it's an odd kind of, uh, it's an odd kind of a situation, but the guy who's the main pastor there is somebody that I discipled over the years and I've been in bands with. For most of my life, even though I've normally been in some sort of ministerial position in a church. I've been in uh, a number of musical expressions, including at the very first of what uh, came to be called the Jesus Movement uh, situation. I founded a band called Archangel way back in the in the 70s and so forth. And I've done a number of solo albums, uh, done programs for PBS, uh, mostly on 15th century and earlier uh, Christmas music. And uh, 
you know, I was in Cademan's Call for a while. Uh, I mean, Atomic Opera, which uh, we were on Metal Blade for a while and so forth. It's uh, pretty hard rock. And, uh, yeah, and uh, yeah, and then uh, also um, we had a band called Radio Halo that played a lot in uh, Houston in the late 80s and early 90s um, and so forth. So I've always been doing some kind of music. I've written it, you know, made a lot of my living from uh, writing songs for other people, um, worship songs and so forth. So, so if you had to rate our intro song that we had someone make for us. <laughs> That's kind of an anthem rock. What, what did you feel like? If you had a great, like a one through ten, one to ten, like you, one to like Mona Lisa, from or from, that's from probably one to art. angelic chorus. Where okay. would you place uh, the intro soundtrack? <laughs> By the way, Michael and I pretty, didn't make it. I liked it pretty good. I just wished it was longer. You know. Was, oh yeah, uh, you, you were jamming out to it, huh? Give it a seven and a half or eight, but oh, I couldn't dance to it. So. so uh kemper talk to us about so you've been a pastor teaching god's word you've been an artist musician particularly uh but how have you how has the interrelationship between instructing people in the word of god and art come together for you how have theology and art complemented one another in your ministry well i've never seen much of a uh I've never seen much of any kind of tension between the two things. And in point of fact, uh, you know, the theological training and so forth, I think has helped me to reject a lot of the things that are in uh, the arts in the church, especially uh, worship music and so forth as being facile. So, I mean, that's helped not to mention that uh, generally speaking, most of the songs that I've written or performed or so forth are, are aimed at some sort of a, you know, a deeper kind of communication of, of uh, the gospel. I'm, I'm kind of of the opinion that in the West, especially in America, the problem is not that people don't know how to become a Christian. The problem is they don't know why they would ever want to. And I think a lot of that is because the church rarely addresses anything other than worship or, or uh, what we, I guess, think of as narrowly doctrinal things. There's not not a whole lot of attention given to, um, you know, politics or, or uh, you know, even love songs, except in the context of uh, the family or something, not in terms of sort of affective, emotional things. And and uh, I think that's been a problem. I think it's part of the reason why part of the church is going off the tracks on, uh, you know, the whole uh, woke movement and so forth and so on, or simply because at least that's addressing these problems that the church normally just doesn't address. And our young people are confused about stuff. I mean, they they know how to get saved. They might know how to get filled with the Holy Spirit or whatever, but they, they don't really understand the implications that creedal truth has for, you know, the rest of life. So I've, I've, I've tried and actually had a good amount of hassle from record labels and stuff is because I, you know, I attempt to uh, express some sort of you know, more deeply doctrinal kind of thought about stuff like that. So, so it sounds I, like you're, are, are you suggesting that, uh, that the church, I mean, is there some way that art plays a role in making things more relevant? Does art play an evangelistic role, uh, and a discipleship role in the church that is causing us not to bridge the gap? Uh, I, I think so. I think uh, most of our artistic expressions are pretty much governed by pietism. And, uh, you know, I'm not completely down on pietism. I, I value the fact that uh, the pietists called for a living relationship with Christ, an experiential relationship and so forth. But I, I do think that their uh, vision of sanctification, which in, includes their view of the, the world and the arts and so forth, has been fairly dualistic and fairly... Uh, you know, a, a rejection of most of the areas of life because I, I think there's this deep-seated fear of the world uh, that, that stems from a basic misunderstanding of of what Christ actually accomplished beyond saving individuals. And uh, so, um, you know, I, I, I do know that in a culture like ours, which is essentially art-driven, I mean, our media, you know, everybody listens to music all the time, they watch movies all the time, they're sort of a dominant kind of form, whether it's on the internet or whether it's on TV or cable or whatever. Uh, actors 
you know, and musicians tend to be some sort of a, you know, a celebrity kind of know-it-all to have an opinion. And, and I do think that's had a certain influence on the way that we understand and view the world. And, and what used to be, I think, in the church, songs that would help people process what was going on around them and give them sort of a, a scriptural or theological perspective on that uh, is largely absent except for, you know, sort of a one-on-one -on -one experiential relationship with God. So I, I think that the fact that the church is perceived as having relatively inferior art compared to mainstream stuff is, has hurt us. I mean, I, I went back to school about 10 years ago, uh, you know, for more study and so forth. And in a number of those classes were mostly young evangelicals who were just ex-evangelicals. And the problem they had with Christianity uh, uh, was that they thought that it had absolutely nothing to say to anything except escaping from this life. And, uh, and, and they felt like it was a, just a terribly legalistic rejection of any kind of real forms of life or understanding of it. It was weird because they didn't have a problem with the Trinity or the Incarnation or anything like that. They had, they had a problem with what they saw as being intrinsic to Christianity, this legalistic rejection of regular life. Not just that it was out and out rejection, but that, but that the church didn't have anything to say much about that and that the implications of those doctrines didn't work themselves out in, in, in terms of anything else. So, and almost all of them knew all mm, of yeah. the Christian music and stuff that was, that was regularly played in the churches and on the radio and stuff. Up to that point, they knew all the bands. They knew all the songs and everything, but they just kind of thought it was irrelevant. And I mean, in yeah. those classes and, where there'd be 30 people, most people had rejected the faith. So let me ask you At this. When it, when it comes to his, his uh, Michael said, hey, it's like having an apologetic thing, right? Like yeah. uh, we should be using the arts. We should use the entertainments. We think of the Renaissance era, uh, an era Absolutely. when the Christian faith had affected the sciences, morality and law. It had affected um, the arts and entertainment, those kinds of things. And the Christian faith really affected all of these areas. And I'm curious now, some people are going to hear, okay, you're just trying to Christianize these kind of secular worldviews of culture. You said dualistically. Um, now, I've heard that when it comes to morality, we are we are moral creatures, right? The law of God is written on our heart, and we're talking to unbelievers uh, apologetically. We can say, hey, you know rape and murder is wrong, and I know rape and murder is wrong. How did we evolve to get here? And I think it's like God has put something on our heart. When it comes to art, um, I think that there's something that we're touching on here that all people everywhere realize that there is objective beauty. Um, and I think that's one of the things with art that we can use as an apologetic, that there is a standard of, object, of objective beauty. Uh, and right now, there are lots of things that they're saying, hey, look how beautiful and brave and awesome this is. Mm -hmm. And it's actually, the rest of the world goes, no, that's hideous and horrible and gross. That's not beauty. Can you speak to um, our design as creatures to love sure. beauty and and to enjoy that as being image bearers to sure. see and, and embrace beauty? There are some aspects of beauty that pretty much every culture finds the same. Most cultures value symmetry and and uh, you know um, cohesiveness in terms of understanding what the work is, even if it's uh, more complex that it's connected, that it's consistent with each other stuff. And a lot of the cultures understand that differently. Some of that is, you know, due to uh, the distortions of the fall, I think. But generally what you're saying is true. Everybody has this concept, this deep-seated concept of a desire for beauty. Um, and, you know, that plays itself out in pretty much every area of life. Um, you know, and everybody wants that. Uh, I've had, I have a friend who's been asking me for years, uh, you know, to help express to him what some sort of definition of objective beauty. And I told him, I said that the problem is, is that beauty is rooted in the person or persons of God. And, uh, you know, everything that comes from him and the beauty that is in, in reality itself, whether it's inside us, inside our mind or or in the general revelation of the cosmos generally, you know, that all flows from 
God in his interrelationships as the Trinity and so forth and, and so on. And I said, the, the problem is not that there's not an objective uh, sense of beauty. The problem is, is that that sense of beauty, that thing that's lodged in God that communicates itself as beauty to everything is so vast and so broad covering every culture humanity ever has had or will have that it, it uh, that there is an appeal in that to every generation of men who ever lived, no matter, you know, which way they sort of lean in terms of what defines uh, that beauty or not. I mean, I'm sure right. you're aware yeah. that there's a big Yeah, and, and I'm just to kind of follow up on that, as I think about it, I'm thinking about just the, the depravity of, of man's heart and even understanding what beauty is, because I've I've heard somebody describe or define beauty before is that which dazzles the heart. And and there's part that I like about that, but it, it feels too um, too broad because for an unbeliever's heart, for instance, they're not dazzled by the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Their heart isn't moved by the beauty of who God is, which is objective. So you were talking about beauty rooted in who God is. I, I really like that because an unbeliever might look at pornographic images and call that art and call it beautiful. And we would say your understanding of beauty is perverse and perverted against what the true objective standard of beauty is. So, so if we... If we don't define it as that which dazzles the heart, uh, we do anchor it in the Godhead. But it, maybe uh, throw out there like maybe just a concise definition of what you would say beauty is. Well, um, I do think it's 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 broad enough, so it's difficult to concisely uh, bring down. But I always think when I'm thinking about this, about how C.S. Lewis called this sense of God that was in things, he called it the northerness because he sort of first experienced it when he was reading uh, Norse uh, literature and stuff translated when he was young. And, uh, you know, J.R.R. Tolkien, you know, talked about this sense of wonder and pretty much every, every uh, especially fantasy artist, uh, you know, that, that we've had. And, of course, there's a huge apologetic movement amongst the Inklings and even before them with... G.K. Chesterton and stuff like that. And they all had this sense of a thing that was greater than the individual and that called to them, that they thought was un, unbearingly, un, un, uh, you know, so broad beyond anything they could anticipate that it was the thing that they wanted the most. And they all came to realize that that was built into the ideas of beauty that they had in the things that they saw. And uh, of course, C.S. Lewis believed that God had made reality that way so that people would be drawn to the beauty in a thing initially, but that beyond that thing or the, or the what made that desirable was God beyond it. So in some ways, beauty is, is always the thing that is desirable to a person in forms that most appeal to them. And that's a, you know, that and that's rooted in an objective reality of God. But once again, it's, it's, it's so vast. It's kind of like, uh, you know, trying to define, you know, sovereignty or something. I mean, how do you do that? How do you talk about free will and predestination coming together? You know, I mean, there's all these sort of perichoretic kind of uh, ideas that are tied yeah. into that. And I think that beauty itself is, is, I think it's the element in what is desirable in things that is steps just beyond what we're able to comprehensively talk so it's, about. It's something that's elusive. It's something that's um, existential. Is transcendent. What I kind of hear you. Yeah, it's, it's transcendent beauty, something that that all peoples say, okay, it's it's just beyond my reach. It's just beyond here. And I can see it, but I, it's not like I can ob obtain it or hold it in my hand. And, and a good novel is a novel that uh, captivates wonder. If you can see the ending of the book from the beginning of the book, like my, my wife and I will watch a movie and we'll turn it on and I'll be like, okay, this is what's going to happen. Like, and you know it in the first five minutes, the movie's got no art value to it. There's no <laughs> sure. beauty to it, right? Because it's like, sure. okay, great. This is predicted. 
like, you know, you watch the third episode of Diagnosis Murder and you're like, okay, I know where this is going, right? Like, it's not. It's Except not Groundhog's hard. Day. Ex- that Ground- was good. Groundhog's Day is solid. Okay. That's, that's neither here nor Even though there was lots of repetition. Okay, go ahead. No, no. But, but, but to that point, um, can you maybe speak to us about why? Like, there's certain there's certain ages in which the the Christian uh, the the Christians engage with the art so well. Like, why was the Renaissance such a uh, a, a golden age of Christian art? And do you think that we may be re-entering into a golden age of Christian art of Renaissance? And why? Uh, well, I think as far as the Renaissance was concerned, um, you know the uh, the rise of uh, the Thomistic thought, which replaced the Augustinian synthesis, right? And uh, the Augustinian synthesis, which, you know, they, they believed that the Bible spoke to everything in the Augustinian synthesis, which was kind of part of the basis of the, the Reformation, sort of, sort of rediscovering that. But the reason they had to go back with that is that the Augustinian synthesis generally didn't emphasize this worldly expression it, it ultimately held the the greatest thing was to sort of concentrate on the life to come and don't worry too much about this world just kind of suck it up buttercup but then when aristotelianism you know was presented uh to the west to the muslims in spain and so forth and thomas aquinas took that and and he sort of flipped that on its head uh he said you know that this worldly stuff has its own meaning sort of built into it by God, but it gets along great. You just need God's, uh, you need the realm of grace to come and and fulfill it. Now, there was a period of time when those two syntheses were mixing together and flipping over. And during that period of time, uh, the re-emphasis on an expression of spirituality and so forth in this world, uh, which opened people up to be able to, to embrace a bunch of different forms of art and beauty and so forth and a rediscovery of the ancient writings not only the pagans but especially the church fathers and so forth kind of uh, you know opens them up to begin to realize okay okay scripture and christianity it addresses a whole lot more than just pie in the sky by and by so for a while I mean, there yeah, keep going, go keep ahead. Going. no no keep going please no i, I, I say, okay <laughs> Go ahead. Well, there, there was a kind of a balance that was achieved uh, before the Thomistic synthesis. Uh, the people who were followers of that said, well, if the world can get along fine without the upper level of spirituality, then who needs it? And uh, which were, I think, the roots of the Enlightenment to come. But then, of course, the Re- uh, Reformation also happened, which was an attempt to reappropriate the fact that the Bible speaks to everything with an emphasis on this worldly stuff, uh, you know, this sphere, spheres of life and so forth. And I kind of feel like that it, it freed people to be able to see the world, uh, you know, as a, as a unified whole, as a, a dual unity of, of, you know, matter and spirit and all this kind of stuff together. And that opened up the possibility of applying a number of those creedal beliefs and so forth to just regular life. Yeah. So, you know, I think it was a combination mm-hmm. of those things. I mean, the Enlightenment ultimately sort of won out, and uh, and the Church went through periods of greater and lesser artistic ability. Where, where do you think yeah. we're at right now? I mean, with we've got guys like, I think of Peterson, who, you know, this great ethicist that we have, who is one Tolkien away from becoming C.S. Lewis, right? And he he's on the bridge of, he reads the Bible, he acts like there's a God, he's like, there's more beauty in this uh, story. Jordan Peterson. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Like, this story, this story speaks to um, the human condition more than any other story speaks to the human condition. He sees objective beauty in it, and you can see it leading him to Christ. I mean, there's videos of him just weeping, you know. Yeah, he, uh, he needs to be really careful or he's going to end up being a um, Christian. I, I mean, <laughs> I'd love for him to be not really. careful. Yeah, I would, I, would, I, would, I would love for him to be on our team. But but the whole, the whole because I would love to get him on the show, the whole reason I'm asking this question is because it looks as if, you know, even 10 years ago, I could say with confidence, there is not good Christian rap. Like, I could say it, right? Like, pretty confidently. But right now, I think some of the best rappers on the scene, Lecrae, and I'm not talking about Kanye. Like, Flame. I'm saying, like, 
Dude, Flame, Lecrae, who would be Lutheran, uh, uh, Lecrae, uh, uh, Andy Menio, KB. I mean, they've, we've got some really good artists. Uh, all of uh, Humble Beats uh, with like Beautiful Eulogy and all these guys. I mean, there's really good music out there. Uh, we've got stuff and in the metal scene. The, got stuff in and then when you look at visual art, you've got the, the sermon series graphics. Oh, man, those sermon <laughs> series graphics. I'm telling you. Dude, they're off the hook, oh, bro. Oh, man. I... I I worked as a web and graphic designer for churches most of my life. Mm-hmm. Uh, I haven't really been paid as a pastor vocationally. Most of my tent building. But you know what, bro? Graphics. I got to give you props for like, do can you do like a zoom out? Do we I have a zoom out camera? One, but like uh, my, dude, the you way, way you do this head. studio, man, you work magic. I, I try. This is this is theology and art, bro. <laughs> theology and art, bro. That's what I'm it is. Trying. Okay. So, do you think there's a renaissance? <laughs> do you think that there's a, a calling back to? You are at the vanguard. You know, trying. Okay. Ahead, uh, seriously though, uh, what do you think? Do you think that we're on the verge of like mixing theology and the art once again in, a, in an effective, meaningful way? I think there may be the seeds of that going on right now. Um, you know, I I, uh, I, I I've got to say that I'm not particularly um, I'm not particularly hopeful that this very present moment is going to be the mainspring into that i pray for that every day i work for that uh but you know i i don't uh you know i gotta tell you i mean guys i you know for somebody who's been involved with it for most of my life i've i have i haven't really been terribly encouraged by the quality of of christian art you're right about rap some of the best rap ever has come along i remember 10 years ago you know there were only four or five guys that i thought were were really really good at that and that's gotten a lot better. And, and uh, some of the bands have gotten to be great. And there have been some apex points and everything. But uh, but let's just say music, as far as music goes, you know, I think uh, I think we're, we're limited in terms of people who are functioning within the church. I do think there are a number of Christians who are working in the mainstream and stuff who are, who are beginning to do some good work. Hey, Kemper. Uh, Kemper, I'd love to get you to respond to this quote, uh, because it's on this subject and specifically about what you might call pop art or commercial art. Uh, Our researcher for our show, his name is Dawson. He's uh, amazing. And and he he provided Josh and I with a little bit of just research on the subject. And uh, he gave us this quote, and I just want to hear you respond to it uh, and, and just tell us what you think. Uh, he says, pop art is commercial art in the sense that it serves an economic or temporal end. It's not made to be cherished from generation to generation. It's often found in the category of, I had never heard this word before, but kitsch. Kitsch means to put together sloppily. Hotel it, art. It is poor quality, but has mass appeal because of its sentimental associations. It trivializes that which is greater important. It tends to be tacky or gaudy. The Christian community has given itself to this kind of art. Look at the coffee cup with God loves you. If God is love found in the meaning of if God is love is found in the meaning of the cross, having it on a cup with flowers and rainbows is reprehensive. It just depreciates the message due to context. Did you think that Dawson's trying to take shots at the thumbnail of this video? <laughs> Kemper, have you seen the yeah. thumbnail of this video? You've got to see the thumbnail no. if you haven't. Okay, and I I'm pulling it up right now. It is it's y- delightful. I'm I'm proud of you, Josh. I'm telling you, bro. You're bringing on the Renaissance. This, this is this Renaissance is, part. This is two. what the Renaissance looks like, Kemper. <laughs> right here, it, it looks like Michael that's, as Bob Ross. That is legit. Yeah, bro. that's. I'm pretty proud of that one, actually. <laughs> <laughs> well, one time Josh did a thumbnail and he put me on it and he gave me a different body and I didn't know. I was like, I was like, wow, I I look kind of buff. And he's like, bro, that's not you. <laughs> okay. I need the pose. Anyway, okay. That so here, here's why I asked that and uh, about that quote is because you know the hymns, like we're still singing hymns from hundreds of years ago. That's true, but. Like a, a Christian, like whatever Hillsong comes out with or whatever, like it's old in a few years, you know? Mm. So is, is there something intrinsically to hymns that is more beautiful, like that you could actually argue objectively? Are we commercializing our worship music by doing this? Or is it, you know, I, th- I think of, for instance, in the days of... Uh, Moody and Sankey, or uh, the two Wesleys, John and Charles, like they paired up together, and they, you know, it was said they would sing the, they would take like the tavern songs and the beats, and they turn them into the Christian music. Like, 
like I can see both sides on on one side like hey this is what's really like engaging with the people and the populace on the other hand it has no staying power and is that because mm. it doesn't have objective beauty and it's this sort of cheap commercialization so what do you think wow well uh, you want you want me to respond to the quote first or the second question about the hymns first uh everything just whatever you want I think I think the quote is generally accurate actually uh you know I think that because Christians have uh basically reduced art to a sort of a propaganda front that it it uh, does tend to denigrate things because they're looking for some sort of an immediate connection which it, it, that's not necessarily an evil thing i mean you need cups so there's not necessarily anything wrong with a christian quote on it but but some of the things that they put on cups to represent christianity are pretty embarrassing you know uh, at least in my experience if I was talking to you know non-believers or something, they would uh, they would roundly and justifiably mock some of the T-shirts and stuff like that that have uh, been around. So, you know, I do think I do think that that's unfortunately generally true. The the, the Christian industry, whether it's music or you know uh, or kitsch or whatever it is like that, uh, generally don't have a whole lot of depth to it and so forth they're intended to make an immediate appeal so they can sell cds or cups or keep the christian stores open or, or whatever so that's not necessarily always an evil thing i think you know you've got to have uh, there's always been ornamentation on useful things and stuff like that so i don't think that's necessarily an evil thing but let's take the hymns as an example the thing is, is that we forget is that the hymns that we have uh have had staying power for hundreds of years. But if you go back and you look at a hymnal from that same period of time, maybe 20 of those hymns out of you know 200 are still with us because the hymns that we have that we all sing, we've been singing for 400 years. It's difficult to improve on Amazing Grace. Now, I know some people throw some choruses on there or whatever, but you're right. When the choruses are forgotten, you know, uh, and those courses, of course, help to make whoever added those a certain amount of money on their records and sell some new recordings of it or whatever. But but the song will still be here. And I I suspect that out of the worship music, you know, that we have now, some of those songs will have longevity. I mean, I, I'm old enough to have been in the first wave of the Jesus movement. And uh, we still, in a lot of churches, sing some of those songs that we've been singing for almost 50 years now. Those songs will probably last a while. But most of the songs that we had, most of the music went away, you know, and and, uh, and is justly forgotten a lot hmm. of it. So we have to remember that, you know, time itself uh, generally uh, does away with the dreck and hangs on to the good hmm. things. Yeah, you know, even in the song Awesome God, like I hear worship leaders, like they'll play that chorus, but they won't get into the parts where it's like, God's pulling up his sleeve and put you, putting you on a Ritz. I don't even know what that line means. I think he says something like that. I think about Ritz crackers. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a terrible... It, it must have been a slang in the 70s. I don't know. It was. It was indeed. And it Did you ever put anyone on the Ritz? Huh? <laughs> Did, Did you ever put anyone on the Ritz? No, but uh, putting on the Ritz was a, you know, a, quite a popular mainstream song at the time. Oh, was know, it? So everybody knew the phrase because it was uh, da, 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 da. putting on the Ritz. It was, it was it was around and it was a hit song for huh. several times. It Probably was a, it's, it was it was the sloppy wet kiss of the seventies, maybe. That's exactly right. <laughs> there it is. There it that's is. Exactly right. So let's let's and, you know most people change sloppy wet kiss to something else. It's unforeseen. I mean. You know? It's unforeseen where this podcast is going, um, but uh, with uh, uh, with this with this uh, discussion, when it talks about like redeeming certain art forms, right? There there is a, a conversation right now bit, uh, amongst some very charismatic communities. We, we would identify as charismatic, but uh, there is definitely groups willing to go much further than we are. Let's redeem the occult. Let's redeem these kinds of. Uh, uh, witchcraft practices and Christianize them. I mean, there's some real wacky stuff going on. Yeah, right there's now. some wacky stuff out now, there. Now, some people are kind of 
uh, attributing certain art forms. You know, hey, don't you know where, you know, jazz music comes from? That's Jezebel music. Jazz is just short for Jezzy B. Uh, that's Real- actually a true story. Did you not know that? Uh, je- jazz music is short for Jezebel well, Was that music. some kind of racial slur kind of deal because African-Americans invented jazz and... No, it was it was uh, it was uh, black Americans who didn't think it was good for Christians to go do mainstream music. They're the ones who who, Gave, called, who, it call, who called it that. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. So so anyway, so uh, there's certain art forms. Hey, rap music is this. You know, jazz music is that. You know, that heavy rock metal stuff like that that can only be used for the devil. Like God can't redeem that genre. It's too right. angry. It's too loud. It's too whatever. It's too. Uh, anti-authoritarian whatever yeah you can't redeem papa roach can't be done uh those kinds of things like (laughs) and and even art forms would be in similar categories these kinds of conversations are even taking place with these very great hymns that we're talking about many of which were bar songs which were rewritten to the tune that's exactly right of bar songs but can you can you give us what would be what would be the theological boundaries that you would give us in redeeming some of these art forms, whether it be music genres or uh, uh, design? Well, I mean, the thing is, is that the origin of a lot of so-called, like let's take metal music, for instance, you know. Um, Lord knows the church has been hammering on metal music since I was a kid, before it was called metal, back when it was called hard rock or acid rock or whatever. Um, You know, and they're you know, their their arguments about that are, you know, the source of these things is from these pagans and so forth and so on. But in the first place, my argument about that is that, uh, you know, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness of it. And, uh, you know, any kind of thing that people can come up with, they didn't come up with in a vacuum. Even if they got it from a demon, uh, the demon perverted something that God had made as originally good, as Genesis one tells, especially verse 31. So, you know, um, the fact that, I mean, for instance, if you look at Genesis uh, 4, the first, the tripod of civilization, right, uh, which is food stuff and uh, technology and music, were the three great-great-grandsons of Cain who were evil. They were evil guys. But they came up with the city, the first city was... Uh, founded by Cain and named after his son. And you had these three guys who came up with these, with these aspects of culture, uh, Jubal music and uh, Tubal Cain technology and, and Jabal uh, livestock herding and so forth and so on. But those guys, you know, even though they had, uh, you know, the understanding, the ability and the talent to come up with those things, they didn't come from nothing. I mean, even fallen men are still in the image of God. Now, they took those good things that they sort of first saw and perverted them in many ways for evil purposes. But I've pointed out to people a lot of times that at the end of time, reality becomes a city. And the first city was founded by pagans. So my deal about that is that the fall has jacked all this good stuff that God has made, and it is intended to be you know, brought back uh, to fulfillment or holiness or redemption or yeah. or whatever you want to call it. You know, a city does not have to be wicked. So uh, what about what about certain forms of art, right? Because like you and I would agree that like, hey, music doesn't belong to man, doesn't belong to the enemy. The enemy doesn't have like a patent on music in, right. in certain respects. But like, couldn't yeah. you say like a postmodern art that postmodern art isn't actually inherently evil? in that postmodern art is actually built on the premise that there's no relative truth, that it's actually trying like to it, communicate a message of, hey, nothing really matters anyway. Right. Like, uh, I don't know if this classifies as that, but it, did you read about, I think it was in like Miami, there's a uh, $120,000 banana peeled duct tape to a wall and it was called art. I think some dude even ripped it down. Man, inherent beauty, man. I, yeah, I can see it throughout all creation. It's just, it's right, intrinsically but, beautiful. Right, but the thing about a lot of postmodern art, abstract art, the point is it's not symmetrical. So it violates kind of our sense of what beauty is, almost communicating there is no objective beauty. That's so right. is there anything to that, Kemper? Well, I think there's something to that. But you know, at the same time, you, you can never get away from the fact that like Romans 1 and Psalm 19 and other places tell us, nothing ceases to mediate the knowledge of God. 
-hmm. Even if Satan tries to pervert that into wickedness, it's still communicating. The fact that it's an they had to take a, a banana peel, right, which comes from a tree that God made and so forth and tape it to a wall, they may be trying to make a, a point with that. Um, or let's take postmodern art you're talking about, which is normally sort of a pastiche technique where they put a bunch of images together and so forth, kind of trying to lump them all in the same ball and say, well, they're all just alike anyway. People just make it up. But, but it, doesn't, it doesn't actually come off to make the statement that they make, except in the very narrow confines of them saying what it means. But if you show that stuff to somebody who's not a postmodernist, who's never heard of postmodernism, they may say, well, it's kind of confusing or whatever, but a lot of people say, it's, you know, it's kind of cool. The same thing they did with, uh, with modern art before postmodernism mm. uh, came along and so forth. I mean, okay. here in Houston, there's a building that the architect made that's a bank building, uh, and he designed it like a cathedral. And where the altar was is where the tellers happen, and the vaults are just behind there, so there's like the sacristy behind that. And the, the whole building itself is, is built to make a comment about, you know, capitalism and so forth and so on. But most people who don't know that just think it's absolutely beautiful because the form of a cathedral is generally beautiful and it's really interesting. So, you know, it is true that people try to do wicked things with stuff, but that doesn't mean that those forms uh, can't be, um, you know, recaptured and reoriented in the way that God intends for them to be. Now, taping a banana to a wall is is kind of kind of dumb, but it's but, got it. But if I could do it for 120 Gs, I, man, I'd be taping banana bro, peels on walls. What do you think I could get away with with this avocado? Oh, bro! Like, well, I think I could oh, make dude, some. Check this out. I could make this some. Money. Thing's, this thing's worth at least 80 grand, bro. At least. At yeah. least. I'm okay, gonna nail so, it to something. <laughs> but you got the sticker on it. I think you got to take that off. I mean that. And hey, says who? the guy, the says banana who? peel, you actually get to eat that first, then put it on the wall. There you go. There you go. Okay, so <laughs> uh, Kemper, you talked about the architecture of the bank. I want to talk about the uh, the architecture of uh, of churches. Okay, right. so you know, in ancient times, churches they used to like. Uh, I mean. It, they would take years and years and years and years to build, and it would be the most beautiful building. And it, you know, in the stained glass, and the, and then they went to the Gothic architecture. But the the right. architecture communicated so much, and it was meant to give you a sense of transcendence and a sense of awe as that's you right. walked into the building. And, and that's beautiful, and I love that. Practically, you know, a lot of especially sort of non-denominational evangelical churches, they've gotten away from trying to really make it beautiful sure. and they've gone more the functional route and right. and a financial case can be made for that like hey let's send this overseas to you know india or you know or for yeah. this or that and, and let's live mission and we're just going to have this storefront building we're, how do you kind of figure out like a sort of is there such thing as a happy medium how should the modern church walk through the architecture question well in the first place the uh, cathedrals and stuff were built in in a society that was predominantly Christian, where even the most wealthy people, you know, at least were professedly Christian. So they had generations to work on it, and they had a lot of money to do that. And as you've, as you've said, uh, you know, arguably, congregations these days, especially ones that aren't part of a, you know, of a denomination that's got a lot of money in the bank or something like that, uh, you know, the, the church that I helped, oversee meets in a school you know it was a we we uh we started the church as a missionary activity four or five years ago and and we're now we've begun to look for a building um you know the thing is one you pretty much have to deal with what you're what you dealt you know the earliest churches didn't meet in cathedrals or or even synagogues or whatever you know they met in people's houses most of the time and when they began to be able to afford to build uh, big ones, they generally aped the basilican, you know, that the that the even the pagans had and so forth. And they understood those in a kind of a Christian way. They changed them to some extent. And uh, you know what happened in the revolution in architecture in the Middle Ages and so forth, you know, had to do with the ability to have the money and the and the know-how and so forth to be able to design things 
specifically for that. Now, I mean, I, I think we're in a place in our society where, um, you know, where where most of our congregations are not hugely wealthy, and there's not a bunch of us, or this or that or the other, and and uh, in some ways, it can even be argued that uh, our money should be spent on other things, you know, evangelism or or. Uh, can I push back know, on that some? Because, I, because yeah. I think that some of these churches, they started building it, realizing we don't have the money to accomplish this in one generation. And they That's realized right. they would actually have to build a building that would take three generations to accomplish, that they wouldn't sure. necessarily get to worship in that cathedral, but their grandchildren or great-grandchildren would. And the That's view exactly. of Christian legacy was very, very different than our commercialized consumerism right now. Why would I build a church... To, that I would never get to worship in. So I don't even know. I mean, there was certainly a time within the Roman Catholic history where, I mean, you know, the expression goes richer than God. I mean, obviously that's not true, but you, you see what I'm saying? There were, there, were, there were so much money being thrown at some of these things that certainly, yes, they were rich, but there were other times in which the church had been building these things that, man, they, they weren't wealthy, but they were waiting for a day where their great-grandchildren could experience this kind of transcendent beauty of who God was. Um, and that's, an, that's right. It's another but, issue with the church of today is that our church is largely escapist. You know, yeah. the evangelicals, you know, we're all sitting around waiting for the rapture bus to come, and most of us don't believe there's going to be a future. Yeah. Even though the church has thought that over and over again throughout its history, I mean, Jesus will come when he comes. I, I, I kind of like... Uh, you know, and they asked Luther if he knew that Jesus was coming tomorrow, what would you do? He said, I'd plant a tree. And they said, well, why'd you plant a tree? And he said, well, because, you know, even though we say Jesus is coming tomorrow, we don't know when he's coming. Our job is to build for the future, is to expect God's kingdom to expand. And, you know, the church in America certainly doesn't have a feeling for that, which is really weird. I mean, right now we've got the biggest outpouring of, of revival in the history of the world. There are more people pressing into the kingdom in the third world. There are now more Christians on the earth than have existed in the entire history of the church. But we tend to have this very pessimistic view of the future and stuff. And I mean, you know, I'm not here to argue eschatology one way or the other, uh, because, you know, everybody has their own ideas about that and stuff like that. But, but I do think that our view of the future inevitably affects what we're willing to spend our money on, what we think is worth doing. And so a generations-long project for a lot of Christians today is just unthinkable because yeah. I don't think there's going to be more generations. And I also think there's probably a strong um, a strong reality to post-Reformation prior to, what, 1689 um, with religious liberties, you know, most of these Anabaptist, Baptist, even Lutheran churches— were being held in barns. Like they were like, where do we sure. hide from government for religious liberty? Um, so you have generations of people. Uh, I mean, I think at times we're talking about four, five, six maybe generations of people yeah. who've been grown up in churches and barns um, yep. as Protestants. Uh, and then Protestants coming back into the utility of it all saying, hey, like we're fighting this, you know, apostate church. Yep. Why waste money on building this beautiful sure. thing when mm -hmm. I could spend financial dollars to send missionaries to X, Y, and Z. And you um, can see their point, right? Sure. Yeah. Certainly. Okay. So, yeah. So. Hey, uh, I, I want to come back to earlier you were talking, uh, I mean, really, it touches on a number of things. You've been talking about the escapist mentality versus sort of investing in, uh, in this planet, in this world. Uh, and you also talked about Genesis chapter four as it, as it discusses the development of culture, which sort of flows out of the cultural mandate in Genesis chapter one, where, uh, where mankind is to <clears throat> have dominion and to subdue the earth. And, uh, and I've heard art described, uh, or defined before as, the act of creating. And so my question for you is, do you view Christian art, and just art generally, but we'll, we'll talk about Christian art, do you view Christian art as even maybe an act of obedience, as a, as a part of the way in which we live out our role as image bearers subduing the earth? Is art one of the ways in which we subdue the earth, fulfilling the cultural mandate of Genesis chapter 1? 
Oh yeah, ab absolutely. It has to be. I mean, we can talk about beauty any number of ways, and, and some of the aspects of beauty are, are uh, kind of escape, um, you know, articulation in some ways, right? But a lot of beauty, you know, you can say things about it. You can articulate things about it. There's an interior logic to it and so forth and so on. And anytime you have that, whether it's an affective or, or an intellectual kind of expression of some sort like that, that is art, it is the articulation of some interior experience or belief or whatever. And so, you know, if you ask me, all art is some sort of idea or experience that's expressed in such a way. And it's, you know, you, you, if you're going to express yourself in an artistic mode, you've got some kind of content that is inevitably uh, in that. And I think that, uh, you know, like I mentioned before, one of the one of the earliest things that happened uh, in Genesis 4 and in the cities and so forth, you know, had to do with with music. But, you know, music was just one aspect of uh, of art. And it's always been part of humanity's existence, uh, you know, especially in, in the religious front. Now, we, you know, nowadays, uh, you know, our non-Christian religions in this country, post-Enlightenment, they're still religions. They just don't call them that, you know, and they still are articulating particular ideas. Postmodernism and modernism, although both of those tend to eschew any kind of idea about, you know, transcendence or God or anything like that, they're still making theological comments on that. So, you know, I don't think you can escape man being in the image of God I don't think you can escape in any artistic expression some sort of some sort of communication about what the presuppositions and so forth that go into that art that have to do with the way God, creation, mankind, or whatever are tied up. And I definitely think since God calls people to be uh, artists, like he did uh, Bezalel and other people like that in the Bible, that... You know, some people are called to be artists, and if you're called to be artists, as Scripture tells us some people work, then some people's express job within the economy of, of taking a dominion over the earth, or so, you want to call it the cultural mandate, is explicitly artistic expression. So we've talked about, okay, art is, um, it's transcendent, it exists outside, not art, beauty is transcendent, it, it exists outside of us. Um, artistic expression is part of being in the Imago Dei in a sense. Um, we can use art as an evangelistic tool because of this objective standard we can hold people to and say, hey, look, this means that there must be something outside of us that's objectively true, and that, that's kind of our, our beeline to the cross. But what about for Christians for education and teaching? You know, I think of the Psalms to teach one another in Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, uh, along with other forms of art and entertainment. Um, what say you about the chosen or these kinds of, uh, you know, video projects where they're trying to teach Christians? Do we go too far in breaking, uh, what is it, the second commandment of making images of Christ uh, and teaching people through images of Christ? Uh, what should we do with this? Well, I actually, uh, I actually think that the prohibition to make images has to do with, with worshiping those images. I mean, same God who, who said that commanded, uh, you know, David and uh, Bezalel and all those guys. Yeah, all those kind of things like that to make images. So I don't, I don't have a problem with images as long as you're not worshiping them. Uh, so I, I think that they're intended. I mean. The world itself is an image, a sacramental image. I mean, every human is a sacramental image and so forth. So mm -hmm. a lot, I think a lot of that has to do with, with the context of the thing. The problem with idols is that they made images of things that weren't gods and worshipped them. Mm -hmm. you know? And I think God was, uh, in the Ten Commandments, was basically telling Israel, don't be making an image of me and worship it like I'm some kind of you know, freaking idol or something. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but, you know, I mean, I, I teach school part-time. Uh, I teach in a charter school uh, that's a classical education school. And, uh, you know, I've found tremendous freedom in that. I teach the from the early medieval period up until the founding of the nation state. So I, I basically teach a survey course over, you know, a thousand years, a little over a thousand years and so forth. And, uh, 
it's been a tremendous experience for me because I've been able to point out the development first of the rise of Christian impact on Western civilization and the problems with it, you know, uh, just by showing the art, playing the music and uh, talking about having them read the essays and novels and so forth of people in those in those eras. So a lot of that has to do with context. Mm. That would be a fun you know, class. I would enjoy your class. Hey, uh, okay. we, we've had a, uh, a viewer say a couple of times uh, something about your shirt. We can't really see the fullness of your oh, shirt, shirt, but apparently yeah. your shirt has significance. So according to this yeah, viewer, yeah, so yeah, I want to ask you, okay, what can we, what can you tell us? Does this shirt have some significant meaning? Yeah, this is, uh, this is the seal of the Knights Templar on this shirt. Tim Adams bought this for me and was uh, quite happy with himself because he knew that, you know, as a medievalist, I'm kind of interested in stuff like that. So, uh, okay. and uh, my, my, my first solo album, The Vigil, I was wearing a, a Templar cyclist with a, one of those big red crosses on it, stuff like that. So, okay. so do you like uh, Nicholas Cage in his uh, explanation of the Knights Templar? <laughs> In well, National yeah, Treasure, I was being oh my gosh. <laughs> Michael sitting over here going, I was trying to make connections. It's been a while since I saw National Treasure. <laughs> yeah, there. Uh, yes, well, he. Yeah, I think he probably was a little confused there, but you know, yeah. <laughs> somebody had to come before Dan Brown and totally mess things up. So. That's right. That's right. Excellent, guys. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of Remnant Radio. We enjoy uh, Can our, I, our uh, episode. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, what we'll do is we'll do kind of do a. Um, uh, a closing, closing thought. thought for everybody okay. so kind of give you that little nugget of what you want people to think about walk away with um, before we wrap up this episode I'll toss it over to Michael Michael gives some thoughts and then we'll, we'll have it uh, tossed over to you you can kind of give us some of your closing thoughts what's that one little golden nugget you want people walking away with before we wrap up the show Michael let's start with you absolutely I, I think one of them would be uh, as a closing thought create stuff because you were made to create just like your creator and, uh, and this is part of what theologians call the cultural mandate and subduing the earth. And you can see that play out in, in uh, Genesis 4, where, where we talked about where there's the development of music and cities and, of, uh, and art and music and all of these things that we as human beings, part of our way of subduing the earth is doing that. So go out and create, whether it be graphic design, whether it be music, whether it be sermons, whether it be books, whatever it is, this is... This actually images God. This is this is a beautiful thing, and it brings glory to God, particularly when you do it consciously in order to glorify God, as it says in the book of uh, Colossians, to do all things for his glory. And so I would say, go out there and create, and even to back up from that, acquaint yourself with the creator. I think of Psalm 27.4 when it comes to beauty. One thing I've asked of the Lord that I will seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, uh, to seek him in his temple and to gaze upon his beauty. So if, uh, if Christians are really gazing upon the beauty of the Lord, and then we become creators, the things that we create will have a, a unique and significant beauty that has power to transform culture. Amen. I'm so. with you on that. <laughs> I was going to say, uh, you know, we, we need to remember that all of life belongs to God. He made the world. Mm -hmm. He redeemed the world. He loved the world so much he came to redeem it. He, he died to redeem us. And he is uh, ultimately going to redeem the cosmos itself. You know, so I would urge you to think about First uh, Timothy 4, verses 4 through 5, about how he says that everything, that you should be thankful for everything, receive it because it's been cleansed by the word of God and prayer and so forth. And every area of life needs to be treated as an arena of art uh, that we need to live, self-consciously live in light of what the scripture says. And uh, I also wanted to mention, if you're interested in the, my ideas about contemporary art and worship music and stuff, if you go to my website, KemperCrab.net, you can read uh, a number of posts that I've done in magazines and stuff over the years that are so serious that address this. That's all I got. I'm, I'm muted. Sorry. I thank you so much for coming on uh, to this episode, Kipper. We appreciate you coming and, and talking with us about art. You guys go check out his website. Uh, just Google search his name, uh, Kemper Crab, and you're going to find his website there. I found it. 
pretty great stuff. You actually released a book on the church being like ambassadors of Christ here on the earth that I actually picked up thinking it was about art, read the first couple of chapters and like, nope, not about art. Uh, <laughs> but, but a good a good book, a couple chapters that I've read. So uh, you guys go check out his website over there. Uh, and if, if you've been blessed by this episode or any other episode of Remnant Radio, just remember we're entirely crowdfunded. There's ways that you can give in the links of the description, both on PayPal or Patreon. If you give on PayPal, you get a one-time gift. If you give on Patreon, you can get a whole bunch of extra content uh, from myself and Michael that we are coming out with. Yeah, yeah. Uh, anyway, guys, blessings. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of Remnant Radio. We will see you tomorrow uh, at 4 p.m. Central Standard Time talking about misreading scripture. Is that right? Yep. Misreading scripture through Western eyes. It's going to be an exciting episode. Great book. So good. Such a good book. Uh, you guys are going to like it. Anyway, blessings, guys. Peace. want to thank Kairos Classrooms for sponsoring this episode of Remnant Radio. And if you're out there, you've ever wondered, hey, I wonder if learning a biblical language would be a supplemental tool for me to help me in my biblical studies. Well, you need to check out Kairos Classrooms. They offer Greek and Hebrew classes that can help teach you and train you. It's a live classroom environment with actual students and actual live teachers, and they help teach you the biblical languages of Greek in Hebrew. You need to check out Kairos Classrooms today. There's a link in the description, and you can use the promo code REMNANT to get 10% off. These classes are already crazy affordable, but with the promo code REMNANT, R-E-M-N-A-N-T, you'll get 10% off of Kairos Classrooms. So check that out today. And thank you so much for Kairos for sponsoring this episode of Remnant Radio.